0: Hello and welcome to the Rare Disease Cell and Gene Therapy Weekly Roundup. Every week, we at Partners for Access discuss the major news developments impacting the rare disease and cell and gene therapy industry and what they mean for you. Hello and welcome to Partners for Access Review of 2020. My name is Sophie Schmitz. I'm Managing Partner at P4A And I'm delighted to be joined here by my colleague, Akshay Kumar, who is also a partner at the company. Akshay, great for you to join me today and uh, have a look back at the year 2020. Now, we're going to talk about a few things, actually, on the session today, and it wouldn't be a review of the year if we didn't mention COVID. But Partners for Access, as our listeners may be very well aware, are slightly different from other consultancies. And uh, whilst there's been much doom and gloom with talking about COVID, there are also lots of upsides. Um, Specifically myself, I've been delighted with what the FDA did early on in the year and actually allowing for rare disease patients, specifically, uh, clinical trials to be managed in the home care setting. This makes such an impact. Um, especially because when you actually think about many rare disease patients, they live at least three hours away from their nearest clinical trial centre. So you can imagine the infrastructure challenges um, and difficulties to get many of those patients involved. So this was a really great stride forward, as were many, many other positives as we think about COVID-19 in 2020. Akshay, from your perspective, what, what, do you, what do you see as some of the upsides from COVID?
1: That's an interesting question, Sophie. We've spoken a lot about, you know, some of the adverse effects of COVID, so to speak, but COVID has also shown us a couple of things, um, especially in the context of the pharma industry. Uh, It's shown us that necessity is not only the mother of invention, but also it's the mother of invention adoption. Now, what do I mean by that? If you see, there have been some innovations that, you know, we spent a good few years talking about, but we've seen pharma being a little slow to adopt it. Let's take value beyond the pill. It's not a new topic. But pharma has struggled to see you know, how do they fit in with the payer, provider, physician, patient dynamic, and what are those services that they can provide. But what COVID has shown us is that you know, it's provided those proof points where the drugs, which have been able to provide meaningful services that address a customer pain point in the era of COVID, um, have shown to have you know, more engaged customers and better treatment persistence, ultimately positively impacting their bottom line. So these could be services such as, you know, physician support services to cut down the burden when it comes to making individual funding requests or compliance services to make sure that the patients are compliant with the therapy and uh, able to access treatment when there has been disruption to services due to COVID. Um, So it's for companies to really understand what are those pain points you know, customers, either payer, provider, physician, and the patient are facing and designing services that provide a positive customer experience. And if they do that, they have seen in this COVID year that it actually improves their bottom line. So we have the proof point and we expect this to result in changes in business models as we go along, where companies start thinking about this, you know, this meaningful customer experience right through from product development launch and in post-launch with the view of what are those wraparound services that they can provide to get those customers more engaged. So that's been one positive proof point. I think another positive proof point has been multi-stakeholder partnership. Again, pharma struggled as how do you bring all these different stakeholders on the table who have very differing needs like the policymaker, the payer, physician, provider, patient advocacy group, how do we bring them on the table to co-create solutions? But there again, COVID and if you see the COVID vaccine, it's taken five months and that's only been possible because the stakeholders have worked together to find an expedited way to bring this vaccine to the market. But Sophie, how do you see this multi-stakeholder partnership playing out in the rare disease and cell and gene therapy world?
0: It's, um, it's an interesting one actually because one of the things that I have been delighted about um, and actually it's because of COVID is the European pharmaceutical strategy. So COVID was really a catalyst for this. Part of it was all around the shortage of of medicines. Part of it was also recognising the importance of health and the importance of actually investing in health and as well the the pharmaceutical industry and the impact that that gives to the economy throughout Europe and, and obviously throughout the world. And a key part of that, of the European pharmaceutical strategy is going to be all around the multi-stakeholder relationships and engagement it's not going to work without that so basically um i I certainly think industry has a big role to play when it comes to, to sort of working differently and adapting to you know the new normal as we go through to 2021. we already have companies such as you know big companies such as Novartis talking about how they are going to change their approach next year and looking at combining roles. So looking at combining a a traditional sort of medical affairs representative um, with a key account manager. So you're having one single point um, that you can actually engage with different stakeholders. You're not having to hit different points. We also see, and again, part of the pharmaceutical strategy has been very important for doing this is to upskill Um, and and also create awareness of the importance of digital healthcare, um, AI in the use of healthcare. And again, this should be something that many different stakeholders embrace to be able to create much faster, more productive networks across various different stakeholders. One of the areas, and you mentioned it actually at the end there, that's particularly important when we think about um, cell and gene therapies is exactly how complex That process can be, especially for autologous gene therapies, where quite frankly, um, you could almost argue that the process is the product and not the actually gene therapy itself. And when we get to a situation like that, all of a sudden we start to see not just how important the manufacturing aspect is, um, not just how important the supply chain is, but actually. Even more important, the providers and all of the people that actually work within the centers as well that are providing these cell and gene therapies, because they ultimately have a critical role to play in making sure that everything goes absolutely right, especially when we're talking about such expensive therapies and one-time therapies. You don't want to get this wrong. So when we're working in this area, we we need to be focused on making sure that all of the different stakeholders are actually aligned to get this right. And I was quite interested when I looked at the acquisitions this year, because we actually haven't had that many mergers and acquisitions in comparison, financially at least, um, to 2019. That might be because we had a couple of very large Acquisitions last year, but there have also been many pharmaceutical companies getting involved or realising they have a gap in their pipeline. So I'm thinking recently about Eli Lilly, for example, um, made a gene therapy acquisition. We've got Bayer who've made a, a Carti acquisition. Um, Astellas, one of the big acquisitions at the start of the year, with with Audentis, BMS continuing their acquisitions as well. All of these players relatively new to gene therapy are going to have to get their heads around how do you engage with multi-stakeholders and how do you do that on a very smart uh, and efficient basis. It's going to be essential for them as they go into 2021. So for me it's, it's incredibly important um, not just for the pharmaceutical industry but to all the various different stakeholders and providers as well. So one of the things for 2020, it would be remiss if I didn't mention the US elections. And um, dear President Trump, uh, and obviously the impact that he was looking to have, and certainly still has, it's been passed, um, that the regulations on the price referencing. We now have a different administration in play, and certainly it's going to be very interesting as we look to 2021 in terms of what impact we think the Biden administration will have on drug pricing. Actually, what do you think about that? I mean, it's, it's one of the topics for many of our clients.
1: And it's a very interesting question. The US ultimately is the biggest market by far for branded medicines. It's really pertinent and can impact our client dramatically. But just thinking of reform per se in the US, I think on both sides of the aisle, both the parties have agreed that there some sort of reform has to come in both around pricing as well as around the rebates and visibility of rebates to different intermediaries in the system. You know, We've seen those executive orders that Trump has signed around the favored nation status for the highest volume drugs. Uh, also, we've seen executive order which removes or requires visibility of the rebates to the intermediaries with an intent of passing on those rebates ultimately to the patients. And this will bring about a dramatic change because irrespective of how it goes, both the parties are going to suggest changes. The big question is going to be alignment. Are they going to get alignment? But with the changes seen so far, it's already requiring companies to start adapting. And those adaptations are things like, you know, gone are the days where we can have a US and an ex-US strategy, both of which could be fairly disjointed. Now we have to start thinking of global alignment. So alignment of strategy, pricing and market access strategy globally. Also, when it comes to development, when it comes to global dynamics, we have to consider them right through from product development, launch and lifecycle management, both from an evidence perspective, but also from a pricing perspective. And this comes back to, again, patient engagement, this whole changing in rebate structures. How I see it in the short term is that this gives opportunity to pharma companies to actually engage effectively with patients uh, and with their customers. And this is going to come up because they will have to soon start justifying their prices with these changes coming in. So that engagement is also going to increase, especially around price justification. But Sophie, that's the U.S. side, but... Coming closer to home, what do you think about Brexit and how will Brexit play out? Because that's quite a different geopolitical change.
0: It certainly is. And I, I'm going to try not to groan when I talk about Brexit. Um, do you know what? Let me, let me take a step back. Earlier this year, I sit on the British Industry Association a committee, it's the Cell and Gene Therapy Advisory Committee to the government. And one of the things that I had said earlier this year was guys, you really need to make sure that you are making a noise to industry that you are still interested. Because quite frankly, we have many of our clients that are deprioritizing the UK as part of their launch strategy for Europe. And this is, this is critical um, because certainly what the UK do not want to do and they do not want to be in a situation where pharmaceutical industries are not actually looking to have innovation and, and to, to sell innovation to actually trial innovation in their country. I'm really pleased that we've actually had some decision at least from um, the UK medicines regulator and basically, um, that's recently come through. So now what we will see from the Brexit transition period, which is next month, January 2021, we will actually see for the next two years that the MHRA, which is the regulatory body in the UK, they will actually accept EMA approvals. Now, that's really good news, really good news for manufacturers that are looking to submit um or already have dossiers in with the EMA um, over the next couple of years. The question mark still arises, well, what happens after that period? And and I can't actually sit here and tell you absolutely what it is going to be. What I can do, however, is to maybe give you a little bit of a hint because what the MHRA are doing is they are really looking to collaborate with other regulators and to be able to, to form a common bond. Coming back a little bit to what we were talking about earlier with multi-stakeholder engagement and collaboration. Here we see this on a global level with regulatory bodies. So Project Orbis is a good example of this. And Project Orbis is an international collaboration. It's coordinated by the FDA. um, But there are many other regulatory bodies in that including you know, the, the Canada, Australia, Switzerland. Um, we've got Singapore in there. We've got Brazil in there. And the whole idea is to look to harmonize the access approach. It's very much focused on oncology, very much focused on all of the cancer therapies, but it could well provide a good proxy for other disease areas as well. If we look at what else the MHR are doing, they're also looking to uh, form bonds with regulators from Australia, Canada, Singapore, and Switzerland in another access consortium. And this is also looking to to see how they can actually optimize and fast track those approvals. So again, linking back to what we were saying earlier with with COVID and some of the positives that have come out of of COVID, this is really a good example of that. How can we be more creative um, in our review processes, but also being safe at the same time? There are also other things that the MHRA are looking at, which which I think are positives as well, and that's also looking at things, for example, like real-world evidence, and how can we actually accept real-world evidence as part of our um, submission for, for industry. This is great because certainly from a a rare disease perspective, we all know the challenges of of clinical trials and being able to have sufficient amount of data. So this sort of broadening of their approach is is really, really important. And of course, the other thing that I haven't mentioned um, is, is what NICE are doing and looking at their methods review. And that's obviously ongoing, that's just started. Um, and really they're not looking to actually implement the new methodology until October next year. So certainly that's absolutely one to watch out for. And for those of you, just just to say last of all, for those of you who are wondering, oh, what's gonna happen then as we start to transition from EMA to the MHRA, certainly what Nice are willing to do is to be able to offer what they're calling a concurrent advice service, so they'll be able to support that transition um, from one regulatory body to the other. So we're seeing certainly, I'd like to say for the first time, some actual realistic um, and, and clear guidance coming through from the authorities in the UK in terms of, certainly from a regulatory perspective, what we can expect. There are no doubt going to be many, many other changes uh, coming through in 2021. And I'd like to take a a second just to say that um, on the 13th of January, I have a webinar. Um, It's an X-Torts webinar, and I'll be joined in that webinar by Alexander Nats. Um, I'm sure many of our listeners will know Alex. He, for those who don't know, is the Secretary General of UCOPE. And UCOP is the European Confederation of Pharmaceutical Entrepreneurs. And we're going to be talking very specifically about 2021 and what that year has in store for manufacturers, um, but also other stakeholders involved in the world of rare diseases and in the world of cell and gene therapies. So I hope you can join us then. That's on the 13th of January. That's 11 a.m. ET or five o'clock in Central and four o'clock in the UK. You can find details on the X-Talks website, or you can also find them on partnersforaccess.com. Very much hoping that you can join us for that session looking at trends in 2021. But for now, I would certainly like to wish all of our listeners a very, very happy holidays over 2020, the end of 2020, and a really, really great 2021. Akshay, I'm sure it's going to be a great year for us at Partners for Access and a great year for our clients too.
1: Looking forward to 2021 with gusto.
0: (laughs) Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you. And that's it for this week. For more news and analysis, do visit our website www.partnersforaccess.com. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts. And don't forget to leave a review. We welcome your feedback. Thanks for listening. See you next week.